Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions about Buddhist meditation practice, specifically in the tradition outlined on our website in our booklet. So if you're new to our tradition, first step we recommend is to read our booklet. We have courses on our website. You can sign up for an at-home course where you practice at least an hour a day walking and sitting. And we meet once a week to progress through your through a course in mindfulness. We have intensive courses at our center preferably after you've done the at-home course. And you can take time to come and stay at our center. Everything we do is free. We're not here to make any kind of material profit off of this. This is purely a spiritual profit. So, first 15 minutes we will spend in silent meditation. It's a chance for everyone to clear their minds bring themselves back to the present moment, prepare themselves for a profitable session, and to collect all the questions as they're being asked. So if you have questions, post them in the chat at any time. And after 15 minutes, we'll begin to ask the collected questions. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, we're back. So from here on, I'll begin to answer questions. If you have questions, you can continue to ask them in chat. But we'd ask that chat be reserved for questions only. So anything else will just be removed. If you don't have any questions, or once you've asked your questions, just close your eyes, stay mindful, and listen. Bhante, we do have questions. I'm thinking of stopping the use of supplements that decrease my depression and improve my mood and focus. I want to do it as a way to give up a need to control my mood. Can this help with gaining a right view? Yeah, so need to control relates to wrong view. So certainly giving them up will help to ease your mind out of that need to control. But, um, well, right view should be understood as, best understood as the absence of wrong view. So need to control is wrong view. And the cure for wrong view is uh, wisdom, clarity, seeing clearly. So... Simply stopping the use of supplements won't necessarily do that. It's important that you address the reasons why you need to take those. So what will help with right view is facing the depression um, and cultivating mindfulness around the depression, around the bad moods, around the lack of focus. Now, it's really hard to do that if you're taking supplements to avoid them, to suppress them, right? To suppress the problem. It's hard to understand them if you're avoiding them. And so, yeah, it will certainly help with that if you, if you supplement it with actual mindfulness practice. Is just 10 minutes of meditation a day better than nothing? Well, mindfulness happens in moments. And so every moment of mindfulness is valuable. So 10 minutes, if it's filled with moments of mindfulness, you're going to be much better served by understanding it as not something that happens over a certain amount of minutes. As something that happens in moments because you can apply those moments throughout your day. And your your best value is going to be in uh, engaging mindfully throughout your day in for, through formal practice and informal practice. So when you're walking around, to say to yourself, walking, walking, every moment where you have this clarity, clear awareness of the present moment, it's going to be very valuable. So 10 minutes of formal meditation provides a unique opportunity to cultivate those moments. That's all it does. That's all formal meditation is for. It just makes it easier for these moments to arise. It's not necessarily valuable at all. You could spend an hour without any of those moments if you're not actually paying attention, right? Simply walking or sitting still isn't, isn't necessarily a sign of mindfulness. 
So really think of it as moments and consider that those 10 minutes provide a unique opportunity to cultivate those moments. But if you're you're best served by cultivating those moments throughout the day as well. More moments per day, the better. To what extent can or should not a novice meditator use guided meditation to retain alertness, awareness, and concentration? If so, is there value in having someone or something remind one often? Is it part of the practice to recognize loss of awareness and return to it without external intervention? Yeah, it, it is because it's a it's a part of the clarity. Sorry, just a second. So the, the the need for an external um, trigger or reminder uh, it leads to you know, sort of a um, well yes it it circumvents the need to be circumvents the need to create or to have um, or be ready for distraction right the distraction is what are these lack of awareness lack of alertness the lack of concentration the distraction has a trigger and if you need someone to pull you back then you're um circumventing the need to catch that distraction and to work out that distraction you're allowing yourself to get distracted and it's it it translates into complacency laziness sloppiness that sort of thing so it's going to be inferior to actually developing these qualities on your own or to uh, catching the moments of distraction on your own it's going to be valuable, certainly. I mean, anything that pulls you back when, when something external reminds you to be mindful, that's better than nothing, of course. You've been distracted. You've, you've allowed yourself to get distracted and something pulls you back. Uh, over time, that could be quite valuable. But it's going to be inferior to actually developing it on your own. So you can think of it sort of as a crutch. The other aspect to guided meditation is it actually involves some engagement on a conceptual level, right? You're you're listening to words, you're processing those words, and all of that activity of listening is going to um, mute or or weaken the power of of your your mindfulness, your awareness of experiences. Right? Mindfulness relies on a perspective of looking at reality as moments of experience. And that's kind of weakened by paying attention to concepts. Like even right now, you're listening to my words and this processing of statements and 
all of that takes mental power or moments, precious moments that could have been used to be mindful. And you can intersperse it with mindful mindfulness. You can be mindful of my voice and so on. But it's going to be weakened. So there's those two aspects to it. It's going to be a kind of a crutch that uh, that supplements your the skill of catching distractions or, or or dealing with experiences or facing or catching experiences and being mindful of them, allowing you to get distracted. And it's also going to distract you itself. Is meditation in public recommended, as in a park, for instance? I mean, not especially recommended, like it's not especially valuable, but I wouldn't discourage it. So if you are in a park and you have some time, that's a great, perfectly valuable opportunity to cultivate mindfulness. Mindfulness. I tell you, monks, the Buddha said, I tell you, monks, bhikkhus, mindfulness is useful everywhere. The fifth precept seems kind of vague. Should we refuse opiate pain medication? When we separate bodily pain from suffering, is it even necessary to not avoid physical pain? So the precepts are guidelines. Um, they're, they're not going to be entirely, um, not all of them anyway, are going to be entirely, perfectly adequate, all-encompassing as, as ethics. Ethics really, on, on an ultimate level, has to relate to moments of experience. And so it's best served by being mindful as you interact with the world. Now, the fifth precept is especially important in that regard because it refers to anything that impairs your ability to be mindful. You know, it impairs the, the mind's capacity to have clarity. So. Alcohol does this. Many drugs do this. Opiate pain medication can. Um, the stronger stuff certainly, yes, is certainly very much akin to being drunk. So I would recommend avoiding it if possible. Is it even necessary to not avoid physical pain? It's important to not... Um, completely avoid physical pain because that encourages aversion. It reinforces the aversion to it. But to mitigate it when it's overwhelming is, is reasonable. You just have to be reasonable about it. So taking a Tylenol is uh, reasonable if you've got excruciating pain. or But taking like a Percocets or something that really intoxicates you is if you can avoid it it's better to avoid it
pain is quite valuable as a meditation object can very um, can be very beneficial and can easily lead to deep and profound insights into reality letting go it can lead to a great letting go of attachment I suffer most from distractions during meditation, either walking or sitting. What can help to maintain focus? Well, again, as I mentioned before, distractions have a cause. Distractions are not just a phenomenon that arise. You're distracted based on a trigger. You like you like something, so you get interested in it. You dislike something, so you start to get averse to it, or worried about it, or afraid of it, and that distracts you. That's why distractions arise. So, what's going to help is uh, learning about and becoming more familiar with the triggers, the causes. I mean, just being more present and more alert and more aware in general. You also have to um, have to get the, the right attitude towards. Uh, distraction and towards focus that trying to maintain focus is not going to help it can it in fact generally I mean, it's going to hinder your uh, appreciate your understanding of of reality and trying to control trying to maintain focus isn't really the the thrust of the practice i mean it isn't really the outlook you want to have what you want is a flexible attitude where you're able to adapt to changes in experience rather than some kind of maintenance of focus. Focus is something that is best understood as a application on a momentary basis, so a moment where you apply it. Now you apply it, not something you maintain. Maintaining is this language. Uh, it it uh, hints at the idea of, of permanence the the um, belief or the perception that somehow you should find some stability and reality isn't stable reality is unstable i mean reality the, the the experiential reality moments of experience are unpredictable unstable and also not under your control it, it hints at ideas that you should somehow be able to control and you should find satisfaction. I mean, all of these are illusions. They're not real. And you have to stop looking for stability, satisfaction, control in your these arisen, arisen phenomenon, phenomena, because they are not any of those things. You're not able to provide the stability that you're seeking. So you need to be just flexible and cultivate awareness and, and focus in moment by moments. And that becomes habitual until you're able to focus on everything momentarily, jumping from one thing. As the mind jumps, you're focused on wherever the mind is, wherever the experience arises, there's also focus there. But it has to be flexible. It can't be uh, a sort of a, a lasting thing. And it comes from, from practice, from training. So again, focusing on the distractions and learning about them. Do I do if, while practicing your meditation technique, I get vivid sensations 
of a flow or energy in the body, or if I get vivid visions, these make it hard to feel touching points in the body. Well, anything that arises should be your object of focus, so there's no need to uh, avoid it because you prefer to focus on something else. If you get vivid sensations, those are sensations, so you would note feeling, feeling. Uh, it doesn't matter what they are. The, the idea of it being a flow of energy, flow or energy, is it's just a perception of it. That's a, a the conception of it, the description of it. The reality is the feeling, the sensation. So you can note feeling, feeling. If you have visions, well, that's just seeing. So then you just note seeing, seeing. They, they, the fact that they make it hard to note something, to feel something else, isn't isn't important because they are the object of awareness. So just note them. You don't have to eschew them in favor of something else. If one took the at-home meditation course and practiced a long time afterwards with the touch points, would it be beneficial to keep adding more touch points to continue to strengthen meditation? I don't think so. I don't think there's much benefit for going over the allotted amount that are given over many weeks. It's a lot of points already throughout the body. That's really enough. There's really no need. I mean, what's much more valuable is going to be more quantity and quality, not just about the points, but about focusing on the things that distract you from the object, from, from the main technique. Why is thinking so much more difficult to note than most other things? Any tips for this? Well, it involves the mind. So it's a distraction already. I mean, it's an it's an absence of mindfulness already. But mindful. Well, it's not exactly, not necessarily an absence of mindfulness, but it's a engagement with the mind. And yeah, mostly it's going to be absence of mindfulness when you follow after a thought. But like everything else, there's. There's no secret. It just takes takes practice and skill. When you begin to practice, you'll often find yourself catching a thought at the very end after you've been thinking for quite a, quite some time. As you develop skill, you'll catch sometimes thoughts in the middle. And as you really develop skill to a higher level, you'll be able to catch it sometimes even at the very beginning. It doesn't matter when you catch it. The, the practice, the training comes from noting it whenever you catch it. So try not to be discouraged when you realize that you've been thinking for a long time and haven't been mindful. Instead, take that awareness as an opportunity to note, to engage mindfully at that moment, to say to yourself, thinking, when you realize you've been thinking or distracted if you've been really thinking a lot, if, you're, if your mind is not focused. I want to stop my bad habits, but every time I try, my mind becomes too engulfed with craving. I try to be mindful, but after a few moments, the craving builds and I eventually indulge. Do you have advice for this? Persistence. Um, in, in, a, in a, a worldly 
environment. Um, persisting is going to be of great benefit. Try not to let those habits sort of um, consume your mind and uh, lead to discouragement. The, the the only things that you really have to abstain from are the, the the breaking of the five precepts, so killing, stealing, cheating, lying, drugs, and alcohol. Everything else that you might indulge in is only going to hinder or slow your practice. And in a worldly environment, that's going to be about the best you can hope for is uh, to, to to keep the five precepts. And so when you're mindful and realizing and 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 uh, observing this process of addiction there's wisdom being cultivated you're seeing that it's not under your control and if you're honest and not trying to control it and not trying to to suppress it and stop it because see, this is a big. This is a part of the problem: is the wanting to stop things. It, it, it's not really a good perspective to have. The best way to approach reality is is as a an, as a scientist or as a student to try and understand it. So try and learn about your 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 habits, your addictions. Of course, that's best done in a laboratory environment, a meditation center environment. And so if you really want, if you're really keen to free yourself from these things, you need to do some intensive observation, and that takes intensive practice. So you have to appreciate the limitations of a worldly environment where you're not cultivating formal, well, cultivating mindfulness on a formal level throughout the day. It's going to take a lot longer, it's going to be a lot slower, but it's part of the learning process to observe and to see how the bad habit, the habits are not under your control. There's going to be some appreciation of the stress and suffering involved in that, that you're, you are a slave to these things and you're going to uh, suffer from the consequences. And rather than trying to stop those, just try and appreciate them, gain a better perspective on the whole, the big picture of what addiction does to you. And that can help weaken, certainly weaken a lot of cravings, a lot of addictions. All noting sensations as pleasant during meditation, how to become 100% sure that I am not generating even a small quantity of craving or clinging for them. I don't think you have to be sure like that. You just have to be observant and note, notice if there is liking. If you notice liking, then note it. I mean, as you gain clarity, as you gain skill in, in mindfulness, it'll become clearer to you when you are liking. You'll be able to catch when you're liking. But you don't have to sit there and wonder whether you have any liking. If you don't notice it, then note what you do notice. Kind of like an onion. You'll catch the very external or the more coarse things first, and as you become more familiar with them, you'll start to notice things underneath them, things more subtle. Not really underneath, but things that you didn't notice. You have to start with the coarse things. I mean, even if you just focus on the body, 
the, the movements of the body, like walking, standing, sitting, lying, just those postures and movements of the body. You'll see much more about the mind that that is uh, that goes along with those experiences of of the body. You don't have to go looking for anything. So if you feel pleasure, just note the feeling. If you notice that you like it, you should note that. What does happen is people like it and, and aren't really paying attention to the liking. So you do have to pay attention when you're liking and say, oh yeah, that's liking, I have to note that. But that's just about being honest with yourself. As I've researched on globalism, I came to the understanding very dark times are coming. Is it a duty to spend more time researching to try to warn people, or is my sole duty to get free from suffering? Well, duty is... The thing about duty is it's very conventional, and duties are going to depend on the frame of reference. Duty in what sense? That's really the question. So you don't really have... I mean, the Buddha used the word dura, or the texts use the word dura, and they say that the Buddha said that uh, there are two duras, two duties. And the first is the study of the, the Buddha's teaching, and the other is the practice of vipassana, the cultivation of vipassana. So vip ganta dura and vipassana dura, these are the two durani. So that's what we understand in Theravada Buddhism to be our duties. Uh, everything apart from that is going to be fairly conventional, but that doesn't that doesn't dismiss it as being important. Depending on your worldly status, like monks have duties as monks, uh, parents have duties as parents, children have duties to their parents. You have duties towards your friends, duties towards your employer, employees duties towards your spouse, siblings, lots and lots of different duties that are all going to depend on the context. They depend on your uh, conventional position. And often they can depend on your culture, um, society, what is expected, what is implied by certain relationships, what is implied by a marriage, for example. Um, I mean, I guess parents and children, their duties don't really depend much on culture, and cultural duties are not going to really dictate what you really should do. Yeah, maybe cultures are misleading. Culture really shouldn't have much, from a Buddhist perspective, much impact on your duties, any of your duties. Duties are much more about what's reasonable, what uh, involves mindfulness and harmony and those sorts of things, clarity. But, um, yeah, do you have a duty? So your duty as a citizen to your fellow citizens, there are duties there that I think are reasonable. Um, I guess I would say, so So, in, as far as duties, those sorts of things do exist, but your worry about the future is not likely to be one of them. Warning people about the future Warning people about the future can be valuable, but probably not in the way you're thinking. I mean, so we can talk about this, like suppose there's some 
terrible thing that's going to happen in the future. It can be valuable to point that out to people insofar as it reminds them that they have to be mentally prepared. Really, you should practice mindfulness because horrible things are coming, and are you going to be able to deal with them? It's a very Buddhist sort of thing to say. Um, but you don't need to research to see that. I mean, death is coming. So probably I would recommend you redirect your attention to what is actually real, real, the real danger. And it doesn't really matter what's going to happen in terms of globalism or the times. Um, there, there's some value there in terms of an appreciating that terrible things can happen if you research the... You don't have to research the future. Look at what's happened in the past and appreciate that that could happen again at any time. If you look at the Holocaust in Germany, the killing fields in Cambodia, even any of the world wars, uh, any war anywhere, um, even natural catastrophes, hurricanes, earthquakes. Yeah, dark times. <laughs> There's lots of dark things that can happen. Are you ready for them? The The reality of being ready is uh, is mindfulness. Really is the only answer because you can't protect your body. You can't be certain to be able to protect your body or let alone any of the possessions that you or, or uh, companions that you have in life. None of these things are a certainty. But you can find certainty in the mind if you have clarity of mind, then your independence from all of the vicissitudes of life is a certainty, is a safety. When practicing mindfulness, I get hesitant when referring to the Visuddhimagga for guidance, since it is only a commentary and not as authoritative as the suttas. To what extent can I trust it? I mean, if any, if if any non-canonical text is to be trusted, it's probably the Visuddhimagga. But that being said, it is non-canonical. So yeah, it's I wouldn't trust it as much as the suttas. But I don't think there's much in there that's not trustworthy. I mean, it was certainly um, engaging with the explanations of the arahants. So the people who followed after the Buddha who realized his teaching for themselves certainly had a part in the content of what makes up the extrapolations in the Visuddhimagga. Because, of, co of course, a lot of it is direct quotes and and um, descriptions of the actual, of, the, of the, the canonical text. So there is that. I mean, it's very much in line with the canon. But the explanations, which are extrapolations, I mean, it's, it's probably the most reliable you're going to get. Anybody who says otherwise is just going to give their own far less reliable explanation, I would say. So if someone looks at the Visuddhimagga in a particular point and says, look, I don't think, I think that's not in accordance with the suttas, then that's fine. There certainly may be that reality, but it's also quite likely that you you who say the person who says that just got it wrong right i mean who's to say who got it right why why should we believe this person two and a half thousand years later visuddhimagga was about what a thousand years later a thousand years after the buddha so that's quite a distance 
but I don't think there's much. I mean, the people who rail against it, it's really a bit over the top and um, discouraging, really, because um, it doesn't seem like those people really know what they're talking about any better. They tend to have very strong criticisms uh, as sort of a, a, a quality of their mind, like they're, they're critical in general and, and sort of um, caught up in their own views and beliefs, which uh, they, they, or their, their, yeah, their, their beliefs and their own character type that, uh, or not character type, their own perspective, which is, uh, you know that you, you they come to Buddhism and see it in a certain way, and that gets challenged by things like the Visuddhimagga, which are pretty dry and uh, very cut and dried, or very methodical. They try and lay everything out in a very sort of. Um, what I'm trying to say is not very romantic in some instances. I mean, we see, we see Demaga has some poetic and romantic examples. I mean, it's quite a beautiful text in many instances, but parts of it, I think, or aspects to it can be quite unromantic. And so if you had this romantic idea of, of meditation as being some kind of uh, magical or, or kind of some some romantic ideas about meditation. We see Demaga, the, the author or the 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 explanations in the Visuddhimagga can get somewhat technical, and I think for some people that kind of rubs them the wrong way. That's my take on some of the criticism. I don't think there's any real substantial valid criticisms of the Visuddhimagga, in my opinion. Is it safe to say that liking is more dangerous than disliking? Is liking the want to go towards and keep an idea, thought, or feeling, and is disliking the want to get away or get rid of it? The most dangerous is ignorance, is delusion. Greed and anger won't even arise without it. Uh, what they do say about greed and anger, the difference is that anger is quick to change because it's unpleasant, it's not easy, or not, it's not, not very um, likely that a person is going to persist in it because it's unpleasant. Greed is much, you're much more likely to persist in it because it's pleasant. But anger is more dangerous in terms of being more violent. Anger leads to more direct suffering. Craving doesn't lead to such profound consequences. So they're kind of different in that way, and it kind of puts them on, a, on an even footing where you can't really say that one is better or worse than the other. But the real problem, the real danger isn't either. The real danger is ignorance and delusion. Which is why mindfulness is so valuable. It's not to get rid of the anger, get rid of the greed. It's to get rid of the delusion that causes them in the first place. Meditation is making me lose interest in things. Sometimes I feel like just sitting without doing anything and being in the moment, observing without needing anything. Am I being lazy due to mindfulness? So, I don't know. Laziness is really a, a, um, a hard one to pin down. It really doesn't exist. You can't really be lazy. If you like something, 
there's going to be it's going to appear as often as laziness because you become um, kind of ignorant to the dangers that present themselves like if like if someone comes and warns you of something you might be so caught up in your liking of something that you just ignore them or that sort of thing or you ignore warnings or that, that sort of thing Um, so that that can be that's how laziness sometimes comes. Where you, you don't, yeah, it's time to go. Eh, well, I'm I'm okay. I'm happy, and you can lose sight of when it's important. Like if someone needs your help, you can be lazy. But it's not really laziness. It's just greed and attachment. There can also be laziness due to aversion. When you think about doing something, you dislike the idea of having to do work, and so you feel lazy as a result. And that can come. As you're sitting in meditation, you realize there's something you have to do, but you just enjoy the peace of sitting still, so you don't want to do it. And it can, because of the liking, right? It can it can prevent you from doing things at an appropriate time. So all you have, really have to worry about is whether there's liking or disliking, and you'll see that through being mindful. But really, the 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 point is that there's nothing that truly needs to be done in the world. You don't even need to eat. You don't even need to breathe. I mean, breathing happens on its own, so you're lucky in that regard. But if you just waste away and die, there's not really a need to avoid that. Not if you're enlightened, let's say, like truly mindful, truly um, skilled in, in or, or in tune with mindfulness. Then you know, you're going to die anyway. Death is just inevitability. And if food comes, if you have food, then you eat. If you don't, otherwise not. So there's there's not really any um, anything perjor or anything negative about just sitting and doing nothing. Per se, again, it comes down to whether it's due to greed or anger, because that's going to create conflict and stress and unwholesomeness. How should I take it if someone says they dropped the Buddhist texts that we accept, Visuddhimagga, Abhitama, Suttas, etc., thinking these are poisonous to mindfulness practice? Should I not get involved, or should I say something? How can something like this happen to people who were very into Buddhism for years? Well, it depends on your relationship. These sorts of disagreements, they do arise, and if you are friends and close friends with this sort of with this person well then you can point out your disagreement and uh, say and encourage them to appreciate things which are valuable but if you don't have that agreement no it's not your duty to to convince people and it's far better just to be a good example Try and be there for people and and express your uh, perceptions, your your views. Be open to listening, and really just focus on your own practice, your own my, uh, cultivation of mindfulness. When it's appropriate, say something. But learning when it's appropriate is important. We were talking about that this morning. Uh, how how important it is to, um, to to point out 
when people are wrong. To when the Buddha was talking about uh, harsh speech to someone's face, harsh speech behind their backs, or, or uh, negative speech behind their backs, and harsh speech towards their face, and how usually it's not valuable. Usually it's something you should avoid. So here, this is harsh speech to someone's face, telling them that they're wrong, for example, arguing with someone over such things as this. And it's usually not valuable. The Buddha said that, uh, well, if, it, if, it's, if it's false, you shouldn't say it. If it's uh, unbeneficial, you shouldn't say it. But even when it's true and beneficial, you have to be careful when to say it. You should know the right time to say it and when it's appropriate. If it's just someone you meet, then you, know, you just let them know what your take is and leave it at that. Your best, um, your best bet is to stay mindful and let them engage or disengage as they will, because often people are very are argumentative. People who discount such texts are, are very sort of theoretical and caught up in views and ideas and beliefs. And uh, there, there will be a a, a um, distinction between someone who is mindful and between someone who is argumentative. And you don't, of course, you don't want to be the person who is argumentative. So try and be the one who is mindful. And if they're mindful, then they'll just disengage, and that's it. It's really not the not the end of the world if someone doesn't accept the commentaries or the Visuddhimagga or the they don't accept the suttas, that's starting to get dangerous and problematic, but focus on a focus on on concepts and not concepts, but uh, doctrines, let's say. And if you can agree that being mindful is valuable, then if you can agree that greed, anger, and delusion are problematic, those are the, the important things. Focus on what's important. Not to say that we should just drop or discard these things like the Visuddhimagga, the Abhidhamma. Certainly not. But we don't have to argue about them with people. Just try and focus on what's important and be a good example. Like show show yourself as someone who has benefited from these things. Because if you're just arguing about them, then you're not you're not really showing how beneficial they are. You're only being an example of how they can be unbeneficial as things you cling to. You cling to them and argue about them. Well, it doesn't say much for us Buddhists if we're just clinging and arguing. Can the mind be tired, or is only the body tired? I think only the mind is tired. Um, tired is this unwieldiness. Uh, the body can give rise to sensations that appear like to be appear to be somewhat fatigued like the brain for example we can feel worn out but um, the unwieldiness is, is a mental experience and wieldiness of mind anyway it doesn't really matter if you feel tired just note tired tired when it technically is isn't, isn't as important as just noting it What are the benefits from meditating? The benefits from meditating are 
too many to to enumerate. Do we have that list on our website? There was this great list of 30-some benefits. Let me see here. Yeah, benefits of Vipassana. We have a list of 51 benefits. So you can go to our website, sirimangalo.org, and under our teachings, in the Vipassana meditation, there's something called the benefits of Vipassana. And it's from Lumpo Chodok. Patamatirarat Mahamuni. I think I translated those. Someone translated them. I think it might have been me. Go read those. Auntie, that brings us to the end of the hour. You've answered every question in the top tier. Okay. Well, thank you all for your questions. Hope they were the answers were helpful. Thank you all for your interest and your keen application of mindfulness in your lives. Thank you, Chris, Jim, Edit, whoever else is there, for your help. Of course. May everyone, may we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.